good. Thanks, Michael. Uh, you know, just a reminder what Man Challenge is all about. It's right there. Be the man God calls you to be. Which feels a little bit like a slogan, but it really carries a lot of meaning with it. The whole idea is, is God calls us to be the kind of men in our culture. As we were here last week, and I'd encourage you to go listen to that online. As what our culture does is messes up the definition of manhood. Our culture, if you were here last week, if you remember it cannot agree what it means to be a man. The simplest of descriptors, people are like, well, I would debate with that. And so we're kind of in a quandary, but as men of God, we're not in a quandary because God has laid out, hey, this is who a guy is. This is what a man looks like. And so really that's why we're here is to stumble through that, explore that. And as Michael said, doing that together around the tables is a key part of it, which is why I only talk for part of it and then we discuss for part of it. We're not trying to force anything on any guy, but we think that if a guy has some other men in his life, that will be a just a massive difference maker for him. So congratulations for being back here uh, week two. And if uh, you're new, no judgment. We are so glad you're here. And if you do know a friend, just grab him and invite him. I don't know about you, I have a lot of friends like, oh, that's really early. And I usually just respond very compassionately, you weak sissy, what's your problem? <laughs> and that summon, that inspires some men. And other men, it just makes them feel ashamed. And either of those options, I'm totally good with it. So, hey, uh, you, have a, you have a little hand out there. And uh, today we're going to talk about the five heroic characteristics of a man. And as Michael mentioned, a lot of this material initially was rooted in a program called Men's Fraternity. And I believe in giving credit where credit's due. And if you've gone through that material, what you might do at time to, from time to time is go, well, this seems familiar. It's built into plagiarism. It's not plagiarism if you give credit where credit is due. But what I also did, I went through that material a couple times in, uh, in, uh, throughout my different chapters of my life. And I realized there were parts of it that, that um, I think we could sharpen up, add some biblical content to, and help guys with in an expanded way. So, like I said, I wanted you to know that just in case you went through that material, it's also been rebranded as the 33 series. And, uh, and so, even if you, if you, we stumble in an area and you go, man, I'd like to know more about that. If you're part of the church, and even if you're not, you can get a Right Now Media account, and the 33 series is on the Right Now Media, and it supplements some of what we talk about with more like videos and testimonials and all that other. I cut out all the videos and testimonials because, well, I think we're good right here. So just a kickoff question for you to think about, and you'll get a chance to talk about the same question around your table, is who are some of your personal heroes? So in about 25 minutes, you'll get a chance to answer that. Now you've at least been prompted. Who are some of the people that throughout your life, maybe in your youth, maybe in your adult years here, you've looked up to and said, that kind of guy, that kind of man, is the kind of man I would like to be. I'll give you one of mine. My, one of mine I have admired since I was a youth, and as I got to know more and more about the guy, I admired him more. His name's Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart was an actor. Everybody knows him from the movie It's a Wonderful Life. He's, he's, uh, he's the main character, George Bailey, in It's a Wonderful Life. Everybody seen that movie? What most people don't realize is uh, that was his first film back after the Second World War. He had a career that was going very, very well. He was an up-and-comer. And almost all the Hollywood movie stars, when the war kicked off, they're like, I will sign up to help make war films. 
And so they did, and that's noble, admirable. Many of them were in uniform. Ronald Reagan was one of them. They just never went overseas. Jimmy Stewart, he resigned his position as an actor, enlisted in the Army Air Corps as a private, and within two years was a was a officer flying a B-17 Superfortress over Europe. And by the end of the Second World War, he was a full bird colonel, had flown something like north of 50 missions in hostile territory. He was like, I may be an actor, don't give me, don't give me sissy stuff to do. Give me man stuff to do. What most people don't realize is when, so when he comes back, he doesn't know if he's going to have a career back in Hollywood. Well, it turns out okay for him. But he never leaves the military. He retired as a brigadier general in the Air Force. He even flew big B-52s during the Vietnam War, just sort of like on a grocery run, if you will. Not, I don't think, on a bombing mission, but he stayed current. Now, it's not that I'm overly militaristic. What I'm getting at is here's this like incredible guy who could have taken it easy, could have said, look, I'm a famous guy, people admire me, and he could have just made it all about him, which just describes about everybody in Hollywood, right? But here's a guy who serves the greater good. One other facet of his life that I find interesting is as a single man, he met a, 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 a single mother who he fell in love with, Gloria. And the first date he suggested they go to was the ice cream social at his Presbyterian church. Not at some high flute and cool restaurant. He could have afforded it. He takes her to church. And they have a long and happy marriage together. In fact, Gloria, in an interview about a movie Jimmy was in opposite a starlet. This is in the 1950s called Anatomy of a Murder. And Jimmy is opposite a stunningly beautiful woman. And an interviewer asked Gloria at the time, are you at all worried that Jimmy is, uh, you know, getting too close to the actress? And she says, oh, not at all. When he comes home from a hard day's work, he pays me extra attention. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Isn't that good? I mean, I heard when I hear stories like that about a man like that, I think, that's the kind of guy. I don't want to be an actor. I just That's the kind of caliber of a man, a whole man I want to be. And so that's really what we're talking about, is when we talk about role models or the, the five heroic characteristics of a man, really what we're talking about is uh, what right looks like. There is a right, and we need to have snapshots of what a right looks like. And so, characteristic number one, if I can make my remote work, it was working so beautifully. It was. Okay, let's try that again. Characteristic number one, I'll do, it, I'll do the old bat, there it is, all right, five heroic characteristic, characteristic, it's good we have breath here. My, uh, just for the record, this still says characteristic number one. Let's go back to characteristic number one. Keep going. All right, one more. There you go. Characteristic number one is a leader. And the story that we have here is, this is the key text, thanks, Brett, is Acts 4, 1 through 12. And Acts 4, 1 through 12, it shows this story. In fact, let, before I get to that, let me, there we go. It does work. It just won't work there. Let me give you the definition of a, of, a, of a leader. A leader is driven by a compelling vision. A leader sees what is right and inspires others through word and deed regardless of cost. You just think about some of those definition elements. Is that a leader is a man who has a compelling vision for life. 
He's not just driven by a moment to moment. There's not urges. It's not just some instinctive thing. It's not a feeling in his tummy. But it is a compelling vision for life. He sees what is right. So he has a vision and he goes, this is what's right. And then he inspires others. It might be other co-workers. It might be his uh, wife. It might be his kids. It might be his neighbor. He might, he might serve on an HOA board. Any of you serve on an HOA board? God help you. I moved. I, true story. I was on an HOA board in Kentucky. I accepted a pastor in California just to get off that board. <laughs> he sees what's right. He inspires others through what he says, word, and what he does, deed, regardless of cost. If, if a guy can't count the cost and he's like, that, that's too heavy a penalty, that guy struggles with what it means to be a leader. So key text, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, this is Acts 4, 1 through, uh, 1 through 21. And it's a story, it's after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ, and um, if you know anything about that period of time, there's great upheaval in the, in the movement of God in the city of Jerusalem. Christ has just been crucified by essentially a joint agreement between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Are you good? Oh, you checking it out for me? You're, you're a good man. So he's, um, he is, uh, anyhow, so let me just read a couple of these verses. It says this, uh, uh, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John. They're leaders of the Christian movement. While they were speaking to the people, this all takes place in, in Jerusalem at the temple. And they were greatly disturbed, the Sadducees. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. So you see the image here. They're preaching away, John and Peter. Sadducees come up. They have armed guards in the temple, swords and all. And they grab them, and they put them in jail. They put them in jail overnight. And it says the next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of law met in Jerusalem. Ananias, the high priest, was there. So was Caiaphas. So these are the big wheels. These are the big deals. John and Alexander and others of the high priest family. And they had Peter and John brought before them. Talk about intimidating. Just imagine who's the most intimidating people you could stand before, and you're standing before them now. And they have Peter and John brought before them, and they began to question them. By whose power? What name do you do this? And I love it. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, because if he wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit, he wouldn't be able to say any of this. He says, uh, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called into account today for an act of kindness shown to a man, because they're in trouble because they healed a guy, and then that gave them permission to preach, then, then you should know this, and all the people of Israel, it is by the name. If you want to ask who we could do this, it's the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth whom you crucified. Time frame, this is just a matter of weeks after that incident. I mean, crosses are still being manufactured. That's not in the past tense. That's still happening. These guys are taking great personal risk. It is in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. And this man stands before you healed. Jesus, and he goes on and he teaches them a, bu a bunch of stuff. And then, I love this, verse 13. It says, then they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They hadn't gone to the colleges and the seminaries and the universities. And they were astonished at this. And they took note of these men, that these men had been with Jesus. You fast forward a little bit. Then they pushed Peter and John out, and they had a little powwow. And they go, what do we do? How do we stop this? I know what we'll do. We'll just threaten to beat them or kill them. Okay, let's do that. 
So they literally, verse 18, it says, they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus Christ. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judge. I mean, you just decide. Who, do you, who would you listen to? Would you listen to people or God? As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And, and I love it. Verse 21. And after further threats, they're like, well, we're really going to get you this time. If you do that again, you are really in trouble. But they could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what happened. They released them. Now, I just love that story because that is a story of what in men's circles we would call brass balls. That is a, that is a, that is a courageous, courageous moment. They show genuine leadership in that moment. They have a compelling vision. That vision is a vision God's given them. They, they, because of that compelling vision, inspire others. And in counting the cost, they say, it's worth it if it costs me everything. Now that's a snapshot of what a leader, a leader is shown by word and deed, not by title. Now this is encouraging, I hope, to all of us in this room. It doesn't matter what you're called. You could be called a leader and be a leader. That's great. You could not be called a leader and you could still serve as a leader of others. But you could also carry the title leader and in your joke. So there's a warning in that. We'll get to that in a little bit. Leaders are accountable to a higher power. All leaders face opposition. That's just a fact. Most, most opposition is social and emotional, not physical. In some parts of the world, leaders have dire peril they face. In our culture, most of it is social pressure. Are you going to say that? Are you going to do that? What are the outcomes of that? All right, that's characteristic number one. Characteristic number one is a leader. Char characteristic number two is a brother or a friend. And here's our, here's our um, key text, which is Ecclesiastes. You can just write that down, Ecclesiastes 4, 7 through 12. We'll get to that in a bit. But the definition is with a personal investment because it's going to cost you something, you don't get a brother, a friend, without some personal investment. Some guys want a brother, they want a friend, but they, they, don't, want to, they don't want to pay the price for that. They don't want to pay that investment. With a personal investment and a commitment, it's going to require both those things, to another person. A brother aids, he's a helper. He comforts, maybe encourages, and he challenges for the good of both. Now you could, if you just are a challenger and you're constantly busting the chops, you're not going to have that friend very long. And the only reason he's your friend is because he's codependent and needs a therapist. If all you are is a challenger, well, either you own a gym or you're a jerk, right? But if all you do is like, oh man, I'm so sorry. that I'm so sorry your wife treats you that way. But deep down inside, you're like, I wouldn't want to live with him. He's an absolute piece of work, you know? But you've never said, dude, you know, you bring the problems into that relationship, right? If that never comes up, if there's no challenge, then you're not much of a brother. So here's, here's how the writer of Ecclesiastes puts it. This is in wisdom literature. This is in Ecclesiastes 4, starting verse 7. Uh, the writer says this, again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There's a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. 
He, there was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. So we have a guy who's, he is getting the job done. He has the party barge pontoon boat out on the lake with the second home around it. He has a beautiful home. He drives a luxury car to the office. He is getting it done. The only problem, there is nobody around him. He's, at, he's got a party of one. He's out on the party barge, pontooning it around the lake, and he's by himself. What a sad, sad son. And then he even reflects on this. For whom am I toiling, he asks, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This is meaningless. And the word meaningless comes up over and over in Ecclesiastes. It just means temporary. It doesn't last. It's, it's a vapor. It's like a breath of air, and it's gone. And so he's like, I have all this stuff, and at some point I draw my last, and uh, what, this, the government gets all my stuff? God forbid. This, too, is a miserable business. Then, then there's a transition. So why are relationships? Why is it important for a man to have a brother in his life? Two are better than one, he says, because they have a good return on their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. Now, don't get your out, don't, don't get creeped out by this. But a friend of mine, when he went through Army Ranger training, he said they, they sent him out on this wet, cold night with just like the, just the shirt on their back and a tarp. And he and his buddy... They get out there, and they are shivering, freezing cold, and they knew what to do by training. They strip down to their BBDs and uh, wrap. They, 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 he goes, Bill, I never spooned with another muscular man, and I'll never do it again. But I survived the night. Tarp over it, and then he's like, we woke up, and we're like, we don't speak of this again. <laughs> and in ancient cultures, that's pretty common. You know, it, honest, Abe Lincoln, there's this common knowledge. Abe Lincoln lived with Joshua Speed, one of his closest friends. They shared a bed. And all the historians, funny, is uh, in the historians today, when because of the culture we live in today, Doris Kearns Goodwin writes about this. She says, uh, now don't get any ideas. They weren't having any romantic relationship. It's like, that's what people did back then. Because in our culture, like, seriously, don't let your mind go there. They, they two lay down together and they're cold. You know what warms them up? Human skin. And for those of you who are married, you know this is true. Because when, when, before I was married, I remember watching those romantic movies where the couples were all like intertwined asleep. Do any of you sleep like that? <laughs> oh, no, man. I have proposed we get two king-size beds. <laughs> it's a human flesh. You just you warm up, but two lie down together, aren't they warm? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. That, guys, this is a passage, by the way, to come back to and read. And like, make that as a goal for friendships right there. You, you see some, some really important characteristics that uh, without important relationships in our lives, no matter how successful we become, it doesn't matter. Now, on the other extreme, if we're in dire need, that friendship becomes extremely important. Right? And we all, most of us know that. But most of us suffer under the delusion that's like, wouldn't it be nice to get to a place where I don't need anybody else? There is no place where you get to where you don't need anybody else. A brother can help you increase productivity. It can, they can help in time of personal need. They can be company. Most of, most of us probably aren't going to have no furnace in our house and like, hey, Tom, can you come over and we can snuggle? That's probably not going to happen. <laughs> probably not. But all of us 
most of us are going to go through a job transition that's difficult, uh, a health scare either for us or someone close to us. And in those moments, it can feel cold and lonely, and it sure is nice to have a brother and, that you can say, can we meet for breakfast? Can we talk? We just need to share this with somebody. Women are better at this, aren't they? But as guys, we tend to isolate. We tend to think, man, I can't wait till I'm a real man like that eagle song, Desperado, out riding fences for so long now. And it sound, the image of it sounds good. If you listen to the song, you're like, they've been drinking. Because <laughs> it's so sad. It's not a happy song. All right, let's move on from brother. I think I convinced you on that. Characteristic number three. This is a characteristic we would call warrior. And, uh, and for this one, the key text is 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 8. 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 8. But the definition of warrior is uh, a defender of the right. And this is key right here. And some guys are like, I'm a warrior. I just like pick fights all the time. No, you're an idiot. A defender, a warrior is someone who has a keen idea of what is right. They are a champion of the cause for what's right. The warrior embraces risk, because there's going to be risk attached to it, but for the right reasons and in the right manner. That's, that is so important for us to see as a definition. Is the defender of the right champion of the cause, the warrior embraces risk for the right reason and in the right manner. And the passage of Scripture, this is a good one. This is 2 Timothy this is written by the Apostle Paul. He's in prison. He's, um, he's on death row. He knows he's going to die. This is the last letter he ever, ever composes. So it's an important one because it's kind of his last will and testament. And Paul says this, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for its appearance. And I, there's something in this that I didn't notice until I did a deeper dive. He says, I fought the race, but I didn't necessarily beat the opponent. He didn't say, I won the race. He said, I fought, or I ran, I, I fought, excuse me. He says, I fought the good fight. I didn't necessarily beat the opponent. I raced, but I didn't necessarily come in first place. I kept the faith. I didn't necessarily convert another person. And I think that this is key, because sometimes when, because we're Americans, right? It's, if you've seen Talladega Nights, what, second place is the first loser, right? That's, yeah, that's what, that's what we tend to do. We tend to be very competitive people. And so what Paul's not saying is you win, it's you complete. I have fought, I have raced, I have kept. And he says, you get a, I, I'm going to get a crown. I'm going to receive a crown, or this laurel wreath. Caesar, Julius Caesar, wore a laurel wreath because he had male pattern balding, and he was embarrassed by it. So it's in all the history books. This is the funniest part. So he had it, which is no big deal. You either have it or you don't have it. It doesn't matter. It does not matter. But for Julius Caesar, it was a personal point of embarrassment. So he, he started wearing a laurel wreath all the time, even though he wasn't supposed to, to sort of draw attention towards the wreath. And instead, all it did is people were like, why is he wearing that all the time? Oh, because it's in the history books now. Isn't that precious? Julius Caesar is known for a thing he didn't want anyone to notice, but because he was trying to hide it, all of the world knows about him now. It's perfect. It's just a great example of a guy being a guy. However, however, my point is this, is that what Paul says is it's, it, a warrior 
stands for what's right. And sometimes, sometimes there's a medal given upon his death. We don't go, well, that guy was a good... We have many medals of honor are given out to men who perish in the process of doing heroic, valorous effort. And we don't go, well, we'd give him a medal, but he died. We actually are surprised sometimes when he lives. Because being a warrior isn't about winning. It's about doing the right thing. Is this valiant cause. All right, well, let me move on to the next characteristic because we're running, on, we're running short on time. This is the Nava. This is uh, put on a little Lou Rawls music here. The key verse is uh, 1 Corinthians 13. In fact, Marty's been doing a great series on that right now, so I'm not going to speak on that a whole lot. But, but the key idea here, the definition is a lover is always operating from the highest and most mature motives. You've got to put that up front because a, a lover's not a romantic. He's not some guy that's great with flowers and candy. But he's always operating from the most mature motives. The lover engages in intimate expressions. Now, this is key modifiers. Intimate expressions in the proper way with the right people. Some guy are like, I'm a lover. I have a new lover every weekend. That's not a lover. That's a user. A lover is a person who, operating from really high-level motives, he and he engages in intimate expression, but he's, he's invested. This is with the right people. In other words, why this matters is we, a lover is, if you're married, this is the relationship you have with your wife. But if you're a parent, this is also an aspect of the relationship you have with your children. Not in an inappropriate way, in a proper way. My boy is 14 years old, and already he's getting little deltoids and pectoral muscles. And I go up and I like I grab him, I, I massage his delt. I'm like, this is awesome. This is, I didn't have this when I was his age. And like I'm I'm always like putting my like arm around his neck and you know I'm nuzzling him. I come up behind him like Joe Biden and kiss it. I, whoop, that's recorded. Sorry about that. Uh, and, uh, I don't mean any disrespect into that. I would do that too. Anyhow, um, can we edit this at all there? Uh, so I come up behind Jack, and I just nuzzle in the back of his hair. Every now and then, I'm like, you need a shower, dude. But, uh, but it's also, he's like, it's my offspring. I love this kid. And I know, I know what the stats say, that children need affection from dad and from mom to help be healthy and grow. But it's all, it's all done in a proper way. And also, uh, because my role here, I oversee adult ministry and kids ministry and student, I don't walk up to other 14-year-olds up on the 13th floor and just sniff their hair and give them a rub down. I wouldn't do that. That's not proper and that's not the right people. I wouldn't even consider doing that. So that's the definition. So what we see is uh, I'm just going to let you read 1 Corinthians 13 on your own. Like I said, Marty's in a great series right now. The key idea here is in the New Testament there is a a word for love that got rebranded. There are four versions or four words for love that were common in the old Greek. One is storge. That's that instinctive love that people have been married a long time have for each other. They're just kind of used to each other. Or the love that a parent has for their own child. Child's born, it comes out screaming and crying and dirty and messy, and you're like, I want to hold it. I see someone else's child like that, I'm like, oh, gross, get it cleaned up first, you know? Right? I mean, do you ever look at someone else's crying baby like, oh, tender, I'd like to be with the baby and hold the baby. Most of us are like, Take your crying kid elsewhere. But if it's your crying kid, you're like, well, I love my kid. To a point, right? And you're like, okay, someone else take the kid. But that storge, 
The other is phileo. That's a brotherly love. That's what we're trying to encourage amongst ourselves here, one another, is that's a type of love that's sacrificial. Um, there's eros. That's where babies come from. And then there's agape. And agape is this highest form of love. It is this, it is this magnanimous form of love. And that's really what we're talking about. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 uses. It's, it's this agape word. And what's fascinating is the Apostle Paul, it appears, stole it from the Greek language and rebranded it. It was a very underutilized word for love that he then took and made something that even most of the Greek writers at the time didn't make, which is fascinating. He basically found an old word for love in a closet somewhere, pulled it out and said, this one will do. We'll just give it a new definition. And that's exactly what he did. But as a lover, we're to be these magnanimous types of lover. All right, well, that's, that's that. All right, let me, let me move on to the last one. And this is the, the noble. This is the noble. And the verse is going to be Philippians 4, 8 through 9. Philippians 4, 8 through 9. But let me spin over to the definition. Definition is, um, this noble has this idea of honor. Not words we use a lot anymore. Integrity. Honor, character. I, I uh, with my boy, years ago started doing what we call the man prayer at night. Dear God, thank you for the day. Help me be a man of character, integrity, courage, valor, ability, holiness, honor. And we just start like listing out terms. But I love this term noble. A man who's noble, with honor and character always in view, always in view. The noble lives as a statesman building a reputation on timeless principles. You could be noble in any period of time based upon the same principles and characteristics. And, and so a uh, key text here is what Paul says, finally, brothers, this is Philippians 4, 8 through 9, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true and whatever's noble and whatever's right and whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything's excellent and praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, seen in me, put into practice. And what Paul is doing is he's given a list of the qualities. So if you use this, by the way, for your like Netflix viewing pleasure, like, all right, I will only watch things that are pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. I guess I'll, I guess I'll cancel Netflix. You know, uh, if we actually use that as a grid for what we allow to bring into our mind, the radio shows we listen to as we commute to work in the morning, the, the music that we listen to, the films we watch, we would approach it very differently if we were to think in terms of that honor and character, statesmanship, building that reputation. And Paul says, not only let your mind dwell on those things, but Paul says, follow my example, which is also a challenge to us. Could our example be followed? All right, let me, uh, let me conclude with this. Um, this, In fact, what I'm going to do, I'm going to put them all up so that you can... Uh, you can write them. So this is what I'm going to conclude with. Is Here's the deal, though, is the, the quality can easily be distorted in two different ways. We can, we can, if the quality is right here in the middle, we can become extremists over here, and we can become indifferent over here. So the quality of a leader, for instance, if a guy has no opinion, if he's milk toast, if he has no backbone, he'll become an advocator. Because he's indifferent. This happens in our homes all the time, guys. Is that when we're called upon to lead, we just go, you know, whatever. And we become abdicators. 
On the other extreme, though, is a, a leader can easily become a tyrant. My way or the highway, because I said so, always. Dictator. Cruel. On the quality of brother, if a guy's indifferent, he has a series of associates. Pals, maybe. But if that pal calls him up and says, hey, could you help with this? Oh, I'm busy. Doesn't return the phone call or the text. You know you've been associated if, uh, you know, you send a text and a text and a text and it takes a week to get back. Oh, I'm super busy. Really what you know is I'm not that important anymore to you. And so uh, some of us are like, ouch, I do that to a guy. Um, on the other, you have the extreme of controller, the brother who's like, you know, shows up unannounced and always telling you what to do and in your face. That's an extreme. On the quality of a warrior, the extreme is a destroyer, hypercritical, mean, uh, bossy. And over here, you got a guy who's a pretender. He, he talks a big game. He's, he's all verbal until the going gets tough, and then he disappears. There's the, the quality of a lover can become an obsessed possessor, and now is overly involved, overly connected, doesn't give any space, or if he's indifferent, he becomes a voyeur. He either lives vicariously, he uh, lives in a fantasy world. When it comes to sexuality around lover, this guy, a lot of porn over here, but not a lot of actual affection with a human being. The indifferent person, if you kind of start to see the column, you're like, okay, this is a fantasy column, and this is the jerk column. When we get to noble, this guy, who's an extreme noble, he becomes the judge. He begins to tell people what to do, and over here, he's just an actor. He pretends, he looks the part so well, but he's not. And so I think that this is helpful for us as men, because what happens is the distortions of the qualities of a man become the characteristics that our culture criticizes. And so the challenge we have is if we say, you might find this if you're married, go home and say, I'm really challenged to be a leader, but you've been a tyrant, or you're kind of predisposed towards that. Your wife might not go, oh, I've been waiting for you to become a leader. She might go, oh, I don't want you going to that ministry anymore. The distortions are where the problems lie. The qualities, even the most ardent feminists, would look at those qualities and go, if a man truly acted as he should, as those definitions of leader and brother and warrior and lover and noble, there would not be a problem. The problem is on the extremes. So around your table, you got a handful of questions. And don't feel obliged to answer every last question. And my commitment to you is at 7.45, we ring the bell and go, you're dismissed. Just in case at your table you're having a great conversation, but you still need to get to work. That way we'll serve you by dismissing you in a proper accord. And uh, so enjoy that. Do not feel the necessity to answer every one of those questions. And if you have a question that's not on that page, you're free to discuss that as well. All right? Go to it.